You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Uh, Good morning, North Canton Chapel. Uh, A few months ago, you might remember, we interrupted our teaching series to talk about fear. Uh, It was early May, and we were right in the middle of a series, but um, the momentum of world events said, hey, we need to hit pause on that and deal with some stuff kind of head on. And um, so that week we went into God's Word. It was Psalm 42 and 43. And uh, while it wasn't necessarily planned, so many of you said that it was so needed. So um, here's the deal. This morning is going to be another one of those mornings. Uh, We're going to hit pause in our study of James so we can address a couple of issues that uh, I believe are really, really critical. Because here's the thing. If you're like me, the tensions get just so high and the anxieties get so overwhelming that um, sometimes it's good just to name them so you can really see them, so you can understand them, so you can start to move forward just to keep from going crazy. And um, so that's where I want to take us today. Now, here's the good news. God's people have always, always gone through times of confusion, frustration, bitterness, anger, and sadness. Um, The early church, our spiritual great-great-grandparents, dealt with all of those feelings and more. They felt the tension of living in a culture that was changing faster than they could adjust. They felt the confusion of not knowing how to deal with rising persecution. They lived in this paradox of hopelessness and hopefulness. God speaks to all of those tensions in his word. And so this morning, we're going to do what God's people always do. We are going to run headlong into his word, center our thoughts on Jesus, and seek to become more like him. So, this morning, I want to share four concerns that I see. Uh, These concerns, I see them in our culture, I see them in our church, and I even see them in myself. And so as we walk through each of these, all four of these concerns speak to the health of the church. Locally, here at North Canton Chapel, nationally, globally, my point is not to slap anybody's wrist, um, but really to point us to Jesus, because that's what I've been doing for myself, and when you get through all of that, I think it's really what we just need at the end of the day. So one final word of intro. Um, Where I want to lead us this morning is not going to solve or dissolve anything, Uh, but it's my hope that... um, in these next few moments together, that we can have some language, perspective, and honestly, we can get a little bit more of a backbone as we move forward in these coming days. So, four pressing concerns that speak to the health of the church. But before we get going, I want to pray together again, can we? God, I just marvel at your sovereignty, uh, that you are always working in your people, and you preserve your people, you call your people, you challenge your people, uh, because you love your people. And so, Father, this morning, as we we turn our hearts to some difficult things, um, I love that you have just gone ahead of us and you've given us your word to encourage us and to remind us of your goodness. So be with us now uh, in these moments. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what are these four concerns? Uh, First concern I want to look at, I'm concerned that we might misplace our purpose. 
I'm concerned that we might misplace our purpose. What do I mean? So Paul shocked the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Here's what he says. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that's a declaration of purpose. It is a willful choice. That declaration is even made even more compelling and shocking when you consider all that Paul did know. Paul was a lawyer with an impeccable record. He was well-educated. He was multilingual. He was a learner of new skills and cultures and people. He was a cultural influencer. But Paul deliberately restricted his knowledge and expertise to one idea, the gospel of Christ. The word decided is our key. Put another way, Paul narrowed his focus so that he could deepen his impact. Paul understood opportunity cost. And for him, the cost of indulging in low-minded conversation about worldly agendas was simply too great. He says, I'm about one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel message that has so captivated my life that I don't want to spend one word on anything that doesn't point people directly to Jesus. In another letter to the Corinthians, he describes that feeling like this. He says, the love of Christ controls us. It's like he's saying, I'm constrained by Jesus' love for people. I can't say what I used to say. I can't do what I used to do. I can't pursue what I used to pursue. I can't care about what I used to care about. Because if I did, the opportunity cost would be too great. And so from his lawyer's educated multilingual mind, Paul says, I've got one life. I've got one platform. I'm not going to waste it. Or let anything distract from the gospel message of reconciliation that has completely changed my life. And that narrowness of focus allows him to see his world completely differently. And it starts with how he views people. A few verses later, he continues. He says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Which is another way of saying... From now on, I'm looking past the labels that the world would try to stick on people. Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, those don't matter to me. I want to look at people and learn to see them as Jesus does. And that conviction ultimately allows him to completely freely come to the conclusion where he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. My purpose, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now in our history... The church has not had to worry very much about misplacing our purpose. And why should we? The church in the West has always enjoyed relative ease on American soil. We can meander however we like because we're pretty sure that we're going to be here next week, same time, same channel, right? But have you gotten the subtle impression in recent months that that may not always be the case? If you haven't, open your eyes. Let me say it this way. Our choices are costing us more than they ever have. The church has more to lose today than I think we ever have. Let me give an example of opportunity cost. So I want to talk about masks. I want to address those who are absolutely convinced that masks work and you're mad about it. And I want to address those who are absolutely convinced that they don't work and you're mad about it. And depending on the week, the day, the hour, I'm in both camps. Like, here's the next article. Here's the next blog post. Here's the next thing. Here's the latest report, right? I want to invite you both to consider that you are both 
missing the point. And in missing the point, you are misplacing your purpose. I see so many Christians making horrible choices at great opportunity cost, and it's breaking God's heart. Jesus is our master, and he's already given us our purpose, and it's one idea, the cross. And we lose when we chase, defend, or grieve over short-sighted causes, because for every word you spend in those discussions, you have lost the opportunity for a greater investment in the gospel. And so you can defend your political theory, or your concept, or your position on whatever. But when you do, you spend your valuable influence and it costs you, and the kingdom of God is weaker because of that choice. Something that I've been thinking about recently, and this is a sad place to sit for a bit, so I won't stay here too long, is like, why don't we talk about gospel stuff anymore? I'm serious. Like, when was the last time that you sat with a friend and talked about the power of the cross? When was the last time you grieved over, prayed over, fasted for the lost people around you? When was the last time your conversation was characterized by the incredible love of God shown in the person of Jesus? Why do we spill our best words on other things rather than talking about how Jesus is working in our life? Why don't we talk about gospel things anymore? If the church survives in the West, and it's a big if, it will be because a group of people devoted themselves to becoming obsessed with one idea more than any other, the cross. Our success is not the preservation of our brand of Christianity. Our success is the expansion of the kingdom of Christ. He is our master, and he gets to determine what we care about. He gets to determine what we spend our life chasing. He gets final say in what we do, not me and not you. And so for us, while we can chase other things. And while we can choose to spend our best conversations on less worthy agendas, we do so at great cost to the gospel, and it's not worth it. Let's not misplace our purpose. Second concern that I have, I'm concerned that we've misused our freedom. I'm concerned that we've misused our freedom. John 18 Right? Pilate questions Jesus about his political loyalties, and he's trying to pin him against the wall. Pilate just asks him a direct question. He says, are you king of the Jews? Translation, do I need to be like fearful of you? Do I need to be afraid of you? And Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, what does that have to do with our freedom? Everything. I wear a mask when I'm out in public, and I hate it. It fogs up my glasses. It makes it more difficult to breathe. I don't like the way it smells. I feel stupid. I can't see people smiling. They can't smile back at me. I have to talk louder. And candidly, I just don't like people telling me what to do. And I understand your frustration because we're free to do what we want, right? As Americans, absolutely you are. As Christians, not so much. That should not be new news to you. So let me suggest to you a more biblical way to view your freedom. Paul, to the Corinthians, again, chapter 9 this time, which interestingly, if you have an ESV, is subtitled, Paul Surrenders His Rights. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, here's what he says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And then later he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. 
So let's dissect this a bit, can we? So first phrase, I am free from all. This is Paul saying, I don't have any restrictions. In Paul's day, the issue was food. And there's a subset of Jewish believers that says, Paul, you can't eat that meat. And Paul says, I can do whatever I want. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. And so his righteousness is now my righteousness. And so I don't have to obey that anymore. Give me a bacon sandwich. I'm free from restrictions. But Paul does an about face that we need to see. He says, even though that's true, I have made myself a servant to all. Paul makes a choice and he says, look, even though I'm free, I put the shackles back on. I put myself in bondage to God and to my neighbor. I made myself a servant of those I disagree with. Hmm. I put myself under them. I serve them. I don't flex my rights. I don't lead with what I'm allowed to do. I give up my rights for a greater cause. Well, what's the cause? It's right there in the text. He says, so that I might win more of them. You've got to catch the missional undertone to Paul's thought here. This is the heart of incarnational ministry. Even though I can assert my rights, I don't. Why? Because there is greater, better, more transformative power in freely releasing what is rightfully mine for the betterment of somebody else. Doesn't that sound so much like Jesus? You can't miss that. Jesus gives up what is rightfully his because he wanted something greater. Philippians 2, Paul talks about this. He says, even though that Jesus was in very nature God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself to the point of death, even to death on a cross. How far did Jesus go in his servanthood? Even to the point of death. So back to the Corinthians, Paul has a last thought that we can't miss. And he wants to make sure that he sinks the nail in with one final hit. Verse 23, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you hear how profoundly other-centered Paul has become? He wants his neighbors to know Jesus and releasing his rights out of love for them is the key to seeing that happen. So let's put these pieces together. Paul is free to do whatever he wants, but he voluntarily gives up those rights Paul does that so his audience sees Jesus and he confidently looks forward to the day when they get to enjoy him together. What's the point? Simple. My freedom only has value if I see it as a missiological choice, not a personal benefit. I'll say that again because it's super crucial. My freedom only has value if I see it as a missiological choice, not a personal benefit. Put another way, Jesus didn't free me so I could do what I want. Jesus freed me so I can serve those he loves. Write that down because it's important. And if the gospels are right, serving those he loves are usually the people I am most reluctant and least inclined to serve. Good Samaritan ring any bells? But here's the, here's the amazing leadership of Jesus. He won't make you serve him. He won't make you make that choice. He can't force you. He's too wise for that. One of the great moral rules of the universe is this. You can't legislate morality. It means you can't pass a law making people do the right things for the right reason. You can't mandate selflessness. You can't legislate love. And Christians should be the first ones to say yes. But guys, it's honestly embarrassing that so many Christians 
having been set free at such a great cost to God, aren't leading the way in serving our neighbors when we should be the first to willingly, joyfully, freely surrender our rights. And so many of us are concerned with protecting them. It's very strange to me. Do you want to know what ignites a church? I'm serious. What, what really gets a church going? We think it's when we all agree on stuff. It's not. We think it's doctrinal alignment. Not at first. It's not core values or branding or mission statements or blah, blah, blah. Eventually, maybe, but not at first. What ignites a church? When people willfully, freely live on mission for Jesus, period. Mission ignites a church because it reorders our priorities. It's the opposite of what's in it for me, or I don't like that, or I disagree with you. Guys, that's what boring Christians sound like. And when we follow Jesus, he frees us so that we can voluntarily, freely, and eagerly become others-centered. And you can't legislate that. No one can make you do it. And that's exactly why it's so powerful. Church, let's not miss our opportunity to use our freedom well. Third concern. I'm concerned that we've misunderstood unity. I'm concerned that we've misunderstood unity. I want to speak to those this morning who are willing to forfeit friendships, change churches, or whatever because of whatever you believe about masks, mandates, and theories. Now, this is not most of you. And at the North Canton Chapel, it's not even many of you, but it is some of you. I've watched friendships die in recent days, and um, it's very disheartening. Here's the thing. People have and always will leave churches for foolish reasons. Worship style used to be the thing. Remember that? Christians used to debate about contemporary versus hymns. And doesn't that argument seem like quaint and nostalgic in these days? Now it's masks. Five years from now, it'll be something else. Funny, isn't it? No, it's not. It's tragic. Paul, again. 1 Corinthians, again. This time, chapter 11. The issue of the day was who gets communion first? Now, that doesn't sound like something that we're concerned about a lot, but to the early church, it was a big deal. So here's what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. He says, In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. That's a heavy charge, so what's he mean? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Whoa, like we're going to come back to that because that is a crucial part of this text. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? You don't have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, what's he saying? Here's the crux. I know you want my endorsement. I know you want my attaboy. I'm the Apostle Paul. I can't commend you. Why? Because even though you're doing the right things, you're doing them in the wrong spirit. How does Paul know? He offers two examples. He says, first, one of you goes ahead with his own meal, which is his way of saying, you put yourself first, which is the opposite of what Jesus teaches, right? He says, the first will be last, the last will be first. This is the ethic of Jesus. And then secondly, he says, another one gets drunk, which is to say the poor person among you can't even serve, get served communion because this guy has emptied the whole barrel. 
Both of these scenarios point to the exact same problem. When you put yourself first, you have forgotten Jesus's way. When you assert your rights, you have forgotten Christ. And that's what Paul says in verse 20. He says, this isn't even the Lord's Supper anymore. Like, oh, yeah, 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 you're drinking the, the wine and you're eating the bread and you're going through the thing, but you're not doing it like Jesus taught you to. You're putting yourself first in line. And when you do that, you're missing the whole point. Don't halt the movement of God and don't humiliate the people of God by putting yourself first. Serve. So back to verse 19, because this is the real shocker. Verse 19, where he says, There should be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What's that about? Like Paul, Paul's all about church unity, isn't he? He's always about calling people toward a bigger, better, ultimate goal, and it's always pointing people to Jesus. And here he says, There should be factions among you. Like, what is this? Conflict has a way of separating the men from the boys. Conflict has a way of sifting the wheat from the chaff. Conflict shows who's serious and who's just playing church. Here's the thing about division in the body of Christ, locally and globally. Division always says less about the issue of the day, and it always says more about the heart of the person. There will always be division in the church. Because people can be and always will be divisive. Because people are petty. Because people love darkness rather than light. Until Jesus changes them. Until they start to live for him. And there are good reasons to leave a church. But they are few and they are deep and they are rare. So, unity. What does it look like in the New Testament? First, what unity isn't. The New Testament never suggests that the church should be uniform but it always suggests that the church should be united. That's just splitting hairs, isn't it? Like word gymnastics, just being a little rabbinical. No, absolutely not. Uniform. The idea that everyone should look alike, think alike, act alike, be alike. My mind goes back to when I was in marching band in Hoover with these incredibly uncomfortably hot polyester uniforms with this orange and white stripe down the pant leg, right? So uncomfortable, but everybody looked the same because that's what's great in a marching band. Uniformity. But that's not the church. Instead, Paul uses a more dynamic, more complex image. He uses a body, doesn't he? Noses, mouths, hands, feet, all this eyes, all this stuff. Each members serving the other members for the betterment of all. None alike in outward appearance, but ultimately united in purpose. That's the church. Different in all the ways that don't matter. United in the one way that does. Democrats, Republicans, masks, no masks, government conspiracy, worldwide pandemic. Who cares? If you want a church where everybody thinks like you do, acts like you do, pokes like you do, lives like you do, you're not describing a church, you're describing a cult. And I don't want that. You? I don't think you do. I want a church where we kick all that stuff to the curb, gospel our hearts against the sin of worldliness, because Jesus has invited us into something much better. It's called the kingdom of God. And as we submit to his word, being formed according to his plan and live for his glory, those other labels fade away like disappearing ink because he is writing the story of our lives. Fourth concern, final concern this morning. I'm worried that we have misspent our courage. I'm worried that we've misspent our courage. Peter 
writing to the first century church, just beginning to experience the, the, the early pains and, and fringes of persecution, said this. He says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. Older translation says, Think it not strange. Peter's talking about persecution here, which he describes as a fiery trial. What's he alluding to? It's actually pretty gory. First century historian, a guy named Tacitus, describes a horrific scene. Emperor Nero had Christians covered in pitch, impaled on poles, and then he says, when the day waned, he burned them to serve for evening lights in his garden. Those are horribly dark, horrific images for us in the United States, where for the last 350 years, Christianity has enjoyed relative cultural sympathy. The truth is we do think it's strange. We are surprised. Persecution is not normal for the Western church. And so what Peter wants us to hear is simply this, adjust your expectations. It's the same thing Paul told Timothy In 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, All who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. It's a promise. Suffering is not outside of the norm of possibility. It's normal for the Christian life. It's interesting. It should sober us and humble us and also strangely comfort us that after Acts 3, there's only two chapters in the book of Acts that don't mention persecution. And so if this is our field guide for how the church should operate, the book of Acts, persecution is normal. We shouldn't be suspicious when we are persecuted. We should be suspicious when we aren't persecuted. Now, I want to take this a step further. If Peter warned against an upcoming persecution, the writer of Hebrews writes to people who lived through it. He writes to Christians to hold fast to their faith in a collapsing world, a world where the church was moving quickly to the periphery, a world where Christians are being called bigots and hateful. All that sound familiar? So he looks in the rearview mirror and he says, guys, I want to encourage you with something. Here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Catch this. He tells the church, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that's after you met Jesus, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Did you catch that? Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Did you get that? Let's paint a picture. The reigning Caesar orders his thugs to come kick in your front door, take everything, and leave you with nothing, and the result is worship. Why? Are you kidding me? Like, that's not normal. That's not supposed to happen. This is outrageous. But what's most compelling to me in this text is the reason why the church did this. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So what's the better possession? What's the abiding possession? He's trying to get us to the same point that Peter's trying to get us. Courage for the Christian is so tied to treasuring Christ above all that joyful persecution is welcomed. So let's contextualize this for 2020. I don't know too many Christians with the kind of courage who could leave a worship gathering 
or a church building and head out to the parking lot and find their windshield smashed, who could return home and find their living rooms turned upside down, who could see their kids get less playing time on the school team, or who could be publicly shamed on Facebook and have their hearts immediately catapulted into worship of Almighty God. That's courage. These Christians were persecuted and they worshiped. We are inconvenienced and we want to file a lawsuit. If you think courage is shaking your fist in anger at a government that's taking away your rights, I say courage is bowing a knee before a holy God who is giving you something that they could never take away. Guys, these are our spiritual great-grandparents. This is the spectrum, covered in pitch, lit on fire. Now, to those who are quick to call our current political climate persecution, I'm going to say something that's a little hard. I am worried for you. I'm worried for the strength of your faith because you are not prepared for what lies ahead. I'm saying this as your pastor, as somebody who loves you and loses sleep over the same things that you lose sleep over and is fearful for the same things that you're fearful for. There is persecution coming. There are dark storm clouds on the horizon of our culture, but they are much darker than our current issues. And if we spend our energy here, frustrated, anger, and bitter, we will be too tired to last through what's coming. I'm not sure how many Christians are ever going to get to joyful persecution when we can't even handle minor inconveniences. We need to grow up. Now, second issue related to this, there are some that see our current events, decisions, mandates, whatever, as governmental overreach. Like this is the government getting its foot in the door of the church. Like we're at the top of a slippery slope. And if we let them do this, then it won't be long before they do this. Let's not forget the early church flourished in an imperial cult where you were made to worship Caesar. And if you didn't, you died and the church flourished. So let me say this. Let me be very clear. If our government were to say, church, we forbid you from preaching Christ because the name of Jesus is offensive, we would meet anyway. If governing authorities were to ever say, you cannot preach the Bible because the Bible is a source of hate and that constitutes a hate crime, we would preach anyway. If someone were to say, we forbid you from baptizing in the name of Jesus because that's not inclusive enough, we would baptize anyway. North Canton Chapel, there will be a time for civil disobedience where we take a stand and shake our fists with deep resolve, this is not it. This is not the hill to die on. Why? Because we choose to die for the things that we choose to live for. And the reason we live is to make Christ known among those who don't know him. Persecution may be coming. But let it come because we're defending the better possession and the abiding possession, Christ. I am not afraid of persecution, nor should you be, biblically defined. Jesus has never once left his church alone, and I don't think he has any inkling to do it now. Now, this has been a heavy morning, these four concerns that I've, I've laid out for you. I want you to pray over these. I want you to think about them. I want you to ask Jesus for help. These last 30 minutes have been um, heavy and they've had a pretty ominous tone. And so um, I want to look past the storm clouds for a minute. Um, I want to look to the distant 
horizon, can we? Because I think there's a soft, brightening sunrise just beyond the clouds that is infinitely more beautiful than the fear that we might feel. And so let's end there as we wrap up. This is Revelation chapter 21, and it's beautiful. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain nor any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Isn't that beautiful? It's interesting, isn't it, how Jesus describes himself. He says, if anybody wants to come and drink. Let him come to me freely, without cost. If you don't know him, you need to. He's the only way that you're going to have hope when the world's going crazy. If you don't know him, you need to. Our purpose, our freedom, our unity, and our courage. Let's not squander them, but let's use them for the glory of God and the good of the city and for our own joy. Let's pray. God, I know these are heavy things to think about. And these are heavy days to live in. I'm just so grateful for your spirit that equips us to do everything that you've called us to do, loves, or that calls us to love people who we would not ordinarily love. So, Father, would you change us? Would you mold us? Would you break us and make us new? Make us look more like your son. Father, fit us for heaven. But as we're being fitted for heaven and thinking about this new world that's one day coming, God, we want others to be there. Give us the mind of Christ, the heart of Paul, and so many others who have gone before us to say, I want my neighbors to know him. I want my family to know him. And let us be content and courageous enough to put anything on the altar and say, take it. It's not worth it except one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.